So, Allison, as you know, on this show and in this whole world of American Girls podcast, we're constantly living in a bachelorette mansion where we get to give out roses to some of our heroes and unfortunately ask some of them to go home and and start new lives as Instagram influencers. Yeah, and it's really hard because sometimes, you know, we've been able to fill up this beautiful house with people that we really admire and we know that it's the right thing to send them out to sell gummy bear hair and extensions, but we really want to keep them around. You know, we have your Anne M. Martin. We have your Francine Pascal. Connie Porter has joined the mix. We have so many people. Carolyn Keene is here, right? Wow, beautiful. And I mean, J.K. Rowling was here. She unfortunately was sent home. She was. Yeah, there were some issues there. But she did quote her own tattoo on her way out the door. So I did appreciate that. But, you know, there's someone here and we're really debating whether or not we give her a rose. And I really, I don't know how to solve this. I'm talking, of course, about Anne Rinaldi. Do we have to do a two-on-one? I think, Allison, that's what's required here. And, you know, I only have one question. Do you have time for drums? Is there time enough for drums? Welcome, everyone, to American Girls Podcast, the podcast where we're reliving the American Girls series book by book. I'm Mary. I'm still Allison. And, you know, in our little intro, we were teasing the fact that very, very soon we're going to be taking on one Anne Rinaldi. We are. And it's something that we promised way back during Felicity times. And it is something that has come back into my life. And it's been a really rude awakening. I feel traumatized. I I literally have no idea what to even say about this book, so I'm glad I have some time to gather my thoughts. But, you know, we're both proud and terrified to announce that our February Patreon episode will be covering Time Enough for Drums by one Anne Rinaldi. I think it's appropriate that we're spending, you know, kind of our Galentine's window trying to reconcile, like, can any friendship survive a joint reading of Anne Rinaldi? And I think the answer is yes. I think it's yes, but in, in a way it's like, you know, sometimes when you meet someone or you're friends with someone and your friendship hits a challenge or you have you go through something really dark and if you can grow together during that time, your friendship just gets that much stronger and I'm hoping that that's what happens here. It does and we were really fortunate to read this past week also the second Addie book, which is honestly a wonderful meditation on friendship and freedom and all of these great topics. And then you tasked me with reading No Time for Drums, which I think stretched my sanity. I broke a highlighter. I feel like I went through an entire pen. I have a notebook. And I opened a Google Doc earlier today from you that is three pages of bullet points. And I just responded, I refuse to engage. That's, listen, I understand. It's kind of like when we were in school together, whenever we'd go to a talk that was complete nonsense or I couldn't follow it or it just seemed like a giant waste of my time, but I was trapped. I would just start fanatically taking notes, which I think fooled you the first couple of times you saw me do this. Yeah. So Mary has this kind of tick or this kind of approach to things where when she is like displeased she turns into the official transcription artist for the event where she's like I will get down every word that is important and when you look at it from afar you honestly admire the dedication but when you look at it up close it's like I can't believe this is happening notes to me etc yeah it's notes to you I remember one particular time we were in the basement of undisclosed location undisclosed location 
And we had been forced to see this person give a lecture the night before. And then we were invited to, I'm not going to, it's not, there have been many occasions like this. So you don't know which one I'm talking about. But we saw this man give like a, a workshop on a paper. And he basically turned it into a lecture, at which point I started fanatically taking notes. And I believe my notes were of the stylings of, this man disrespects us so much, he didn't even brush his hair today. No, and that was true. He did not. And you also have this like wonderful E.E. Cummings flair when you are kind of deep in this zone where it's like unbrushed hair, unkempt body. Does he care? Does he care? Sir, you're wearing the same outfit you wore last night. I know know you're in an endowed chair somewhere. You can afford more than one shirt. No. I mean, when we're living in a world of Carolyn Keynes and Connie Porters, I think we just want more. Yeah. I have such a high high bar for people for scholarship for people for the work that people are actually out doing in the world so if you come to me and I know you've been paid a fair amount and you have zero preparation you've put into what you're doing I have a very difficult time with that it's like listen pass the baton give us the mic (laughs) we would have jumped on that situation no questions asked now I'm not making a segue but I do have to say like part of what was so critical about both the Addy book and No Time for Drums, which we read in conjunction with each other, is they deal with sort of friendship and power dynamics in different ways. And I think part of what I'm really excited to talk to you about is imagining a world in which Addy had the power to pick, which she does. She gets to pick her friends, which is really exciting. What if Peter had the same level of wisdom as one Addie Walker, nine and a half years old? Peter Weber. Not possible. Not possible. 100% not possible. It is such a shock to me that we have been gifted or cursed with this person as The Bachelor. And I think ABC knows it because last week they pushed almost five hours of programming on us. I did not watch all five. I watched it. You did? did? I did because, Mary, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Uh Uh-huh. I respect you. Can't believe you did that. I couldn't sit through the full three-hour episode, that one that was on Monday. So I watch on on a different network afterwards, so I don't have commercials. So my content is about 60% of the runtime. I respect that. I This week was good for me because it's finally down to enough women that I can start to remember their names. Yeah. And there's something that happens on the show that I really, really love as a kind of storyline that is when someone is taken on in this case, a three-on-one date. Are you up to date? Do you know what I'm talking about? I know exactly what happens. Yeah, we had a two-on-one, never good. Three-on-one, very bad. Three-on-ones never go well for anyone involved. And it was Victoria F., Hannah, and Kelly. You don't need to know who these people are. Just know Victoria F.'s a train wreck. She has since been discovered. She won a competition a couple weeks ago on the show to be on the cover of Cosmo with Peter, which made no sense because he had a giant like gash and bandages on his forehead because he fell into a golf cart. Yes, you heard that correctly. He fell into a golf cart. That's who we've been given this year. And it came out that she had done White Lives Matter ads. So that cover of Cosmo is never going to go to print. Deserved. Um, But she's badly behaved and seemingly the more she does that is a red flag, the more he wants her around. Hannah seems 18, but I think is actually 22. And I, I don't really know what else is going on there. Kelly is actually closest to his age. Yeah. And basically, she saw that he was going to send her home. So she did my favorite thing women do on the show, which is like sort of act out of pocket because you know you have nothing left to lose. And her van ride after he sends her home was amazing. She was like, 
what's happening here is this 28-year-old man is saying he wants to move on to the next stage of his life. But if you look around, the only women he's kept are 22. Yeah. But you know what? I think she hasn't earned like a Taylor Swift platform to go off on. I don't I don't know that she's necessarily earned that by being dynamic enough in terms of her plot points. Like she survived for a long time because she inverted commas ran into him ahead of time, which I think no one is actually really buying. Yeah. So you think they hooked up and then she came back on or she doesn't know him? No, I think she's a plant. I think it's suspicious that someone with a law degree would pursue this. Like, I have a lot of questions, but also I think it does actually make a lot of sense for him to be with someone like Hannah Ann. Like, Hannah Ann was doing ads for Sonic before she landed this performance of a lifetime. So (laughs) someone who can marvel at a Sonic slushie can marvel at Peter Weber. That's true, although that's sad for everyone involved. Um, and I, I'm not even going to lie to you. It made me go to Sonic last week. Really? Like, it got it got Sonic in my brain, and I was like, if Hannah can get this fired up about that cup, there probably is something good in it. That's true. I mean, you can get a Shirley Temple there, and I respect that. Yeah, you can. So I like that. My brother watched The Bachelor for the first time ever, or so he claims this week. So I have a brother named Rick. Hi, Rick, um, who is a commercial airline pilot. And basically, he claims he was on a trip and turned on the TV, and this just happened to be on, which I don't believe. And he basically watched from a state of wonder and terror and couldn't believe it when we told him he's an airline pilot and then did a deep dive and thinks he works for Delta, which he says is a red flag on many levels. (gasps) And I don't know why, but there's that. But then we've just been hit with the news as of today that he might end up with a producer of The Bachelor. That's a rumor. That's a rumor, which I genuinely hope is true because it reminds me of one of my favorite all-time reality show plot lines. Now, this is going to take us way back. Allison, shaking your head no. On the season of Real World Seattle, everyone knows of that because one of the cast members slapped another female cast member named Irene in the face. Slap her around the world because she basically said on camera on her way out the door that she thought he was gay and she was leaving because of Lyme disease related complications, which anticipated celebrity obsession with Lyme disease by about 20 years. But if you think of that, you're missing another thing that happened on that show, which is one of the other male cast members fell in love with the producer and he would sneak out to a phone booth. That's right. That's how long ago this was. And he would call her and the phone booth was mic'd. And he would be like, I wish we could just be together. Like it was like Romeo and Juliet. And it's like, dude, all she has to do, you just walk out of the house, quit the show. You can be together right now. She was like, ah, I don't know what to do. It's like working as a PA for MTV is nobody's dream job. Trust me. So it was just wild. But it's like, what if that's playing out behind the scenes? This is an audio medium. So our listeners don't know this, but when Mary does a sort of diagnostic about reality television or historical lesson. She does it with the grace and airs of like Cokie Roberts or someone who's been invited to the White House in other times to give a presidential lecture where it's like, you see, this season is known for X for the slap. 
But it is in fact significant because of a relationship with a producer. Excuse me. How <laughs> dare you buy into false distinctions between I'm high not. and so-called low I'm culture? Not. I'm talking about um, ideas mapped onto disease. I'm talking about surveillance culture. I'm talking about the panopticon. Like it's all happening on the real world. If someone could please gift me the real world Seattle, it would make my dreams come true. I was just saying to a friend, also a fellow listener, hey Abby, that <laughs> If we could get a streaming service that's just the greatest seasons of the real world, I would love that. I want New Orleans. I want Seattle. I want New York. I want Hawaii. That's it. And San Francisco. That's a, a lot of That's them. five. I mean, there's probably like 50 <laughs> at this point. I've stopped clocking that, but I'm just saying it would be amazing. Now, I want to give credit where it's due because if I feel like if we had a window into real world Philadelphia 1864 – Addie has a lot of friend drama in this book, and she, she resolves does. it beautifully. She really does. I feel like we should get into it. I. It's not that I don't want to talk about the real world. I feel like this book had so many highs and lows for me. I read it kind of in the morning with my coffee, and it was just such a pleasure to read. And I've been really, really happy that these books have lived up to my very, very high opinion of them from childhood. Mm -hmm. And this book also features a lot about reading and about friendship. And this is one of the books that in my internal library system as a child, I would write checkout slips. Apparently, some of my stuffed animals really loved this one. So Wow. I'm yeah. happy to hear it was so popular. It was very popular. At home library. Yeah. Wow. Well, as the kids say, let's get real. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to advertisers for native podcast sponsorships. What does that actually mean? Well, for our purposes, it means that we don't have to run ads on our show for products and services we don't believe in. We take this community really seriously, so we've in an ongoing way been trying to match with products that actually meet our mission and our values and are things that we're proud to support. So Podcorn has been a really wonderful service where we've been able to log on to their site and find a bunch of advertisers who want to work with us that we're excited to work with as well. If you're creator and you're looking for brands that you might want to work with, Podcorn is a great option. They have a marketplace mission to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and control. And you never give up exclusive rights to your podcast. Click the link in our show notes to learn how to sign up and to learn more about Podcorn. That's right. So just head over to podcorn.com and get started today. So I'd be happy to share a quick recap. It's quite short for this one. But Addie Learns a Lesson came out in 1993. And I'm mentioning this for a reason. It's written by Connie Porter. And the illustrators list is a little bit unusual for Pleasant Company. There are actually four people who were doing different illustrations, including vignettes and then full pieces like the cover. They are Melody Rosales, Dahl Taylor, Renee Grave. Hi, she listens. Um, and Jane S. Farda. So what happens in this book? 
After escaping from a plantation in North Carolina, Addie and her mother arrive in Philadelphia. At school for the first time, she learns about reading and writing and gets a lesson in true friendship. In this exciting and popular series about American girls, young readers can share in the worlds of girls from other eras. And that's kind of a boilerplate from the very early Pleasant Company. Uh, We meet quite a few people in this book and we'll guide you through the new characters. Probably our most important new characters would be the woman that Addie's mother gets a job with in Philadelphia and the woman with whom she first makes contact who works for an agency in town through the AME church. And that is Addie's future best friend, Sarah's mother. So we meet a few different people, a few different families And the book charts really those two things, Addie learning how to read and teaching her mother some basic literacy, Addie becoming very good friends with Sarah, having issues with Sarah when she defects for popular girl Harriet, and then coming back to Sarah after all. So yeah, I mean, there's not a ton of plot points in this book, but what I think is really beautiful is one, I love any story that's about someone learning how to read, or I love that kind of kind of narrative arc like why are you doing this what does it mean to you what does it look like because literacy is something i think people have a very narrow under like definition of internally but actually it has a very broad application um that i think you can actually see in both plot points so i think when people think about literacy they think about literally the ability to read words on the page when in fact literacy can be i think to also include kind of metaphorical readings the ability to read in different ways so to do things like code switch so to speak Um, but also to do what Addie does with her friend group. So the fact that she can go into school and initially she doesn't know how to read and she doesn't really know how to make friends or how to situate herself in the classroom with all these new personalities. But over the arc of the book, she learns um, how to read, air quotes, Harriet, and how to understand where she fits into the social kind of class rankings of her group and how to then operate and behave so that she can be loyal to her true friend, Sarah. And Addie really has kind of a lot of harsh realities that are new for her in this book. So they decide to move her story ahead just enough so that Addie is arriving in Philadelphia. We don't complete that escape journey with her. She simply arrived and she meets with a few different people, including Miss Ford, who is going to be her mother's boss, And then she meets Sarah, who will become her friend, and Sarah's mother. And they're part of the AME charity network, who kind of get the family going. But what's really shocking to Addie is that, one, she doesn't have access to everything that she wants to have access to in this new city. For example, there's public transportation, and she's not allowed to partake. And her mother has to work as a seamstress basically all day and all night to keep them safe, to keep them in a house where they just have the very basics. And when she meets Sarah, she has this excitement of finally having a friend in school. But then there's Harriet, whose life seems to be really easy. And so there's kind of that jealousy there that, you know, freedom isn't exactly what she thought it would look like. But here's a person who seems to have everything. Right. And I think that opening scene of the book where we find them on the docks is so striking to me because you can so clearly imagine Just we can never know what that moment of terror felt like for actual people going through that experience. But I think it does a really good job of kind of asking you to step into your own imagination and access just the limited fear that you can imagine of being in a completely new place 
And also not having the ability to read any signs around you. There's a moment where Addie says, like, should we, what are these signs? Maybe they tell us where to go. Because originally, they're, the people meant to meet them are misdirected. They go to a different, the wrong dock. And so there's a moment when Addie's mother is there, and Addie can see terror on her mother's face. And I thought that was such a really strong moment because you can remember that childhood fear of, thinking your parents know everything. And then the minute you see fear on your parents' face, it's so terrifying because it's like, oh, wait, I thought you didn't understand what fear was and here you're afraid. Mm -hmm. So what do you do? And yeah, that was just a very emotional scene, I thought. Well, thinking about how much can go wrong in that scene. So by page five, we meet the Moors. We meet Sarah and her mother, Mabel, and they get connected with Addie and her mother. So there's kind of this nice pairing And Mabel is absolutely super helpful. She makes sure that the family is set up, um, which is really spot on with what historically would have happened, right? There would have been Mm -hmm. a network of people there to assist. But at the same time, like you're saying, it's so scary. And Addie is constantly bringing up Esther, her father, and her brother. And her mother kind of very roundly reminds her that they're alone, like, great, they have help. And they're going to go live with Mrs. Ford. And she's going to have this job. They're going to live in this like tiny cramped attic. They're alone. Yeah. And I think that if you look back in the history of urban life, urban centers, something that is a really resonant fear, especially in the 19th century in America, is this idea of the fear of the stranger. And that if you're living in a city, you're surrounded by people you don't know, and you're outside of the network of trust of if you live in a small town, presumably, you know, everybody, and you're related to most or whatever it is. And so, you know, if you told me something else, and I'd believe you because I know you, we have a history. If you're in a, if you're in a city, I mean, think about your own life, you go to a new place, you don't know anyone, someone could be telling you anything and maybe is. And there's this idea of the confidence man that comes in the 1830s or so, which is based on a real individual who would come up in a city and say in New York, um, do you have confidence in me? And people would say, sure. And he'd say, can I hold your watch? And people would give them their watch and he'd run away with it. So, I mean, there's like this very palpable fear of strangers and the danger of new places that I think is really communicated. But also you can imagine how the fear is greater if you're a woman of color. Well, and something I kept thinking about, too, is there's two legal pieces to this story that they're probably both aware of, but not to the same degree that someone who had already been living in the city would be. And the first, which we mentioned last time, was the Emancipation Proclamation, which is already over a year advanced which technically meant that they had their freedom. But of course, we know it's more complicated than that. And the second piece is the Civil War is not yet over. So in the eyes of the Confederate States of America, they are contraband, right? Mm -hmm. Or, Or sorry, not quite contraband. That's a different context. But they are fugitives, right, who have escaped the law of the CSA. And because of the Fugitive Slave Act, their presence in Philadelphia in the eyes of the CSA is not legal. Right. So, right. you know, prior to the Fugitive Slave Act, people could pass over to a different threshold and then have something of an easier time, not necessarily easy, but their status could change here. It means that any person that has passed from where they were, there's there's like legal recourse for them to be brought back and the war is not over. What Connie does, I'm calling her by her first name because I'm assuming we're friends at this point, but she's a Leo. Okay, well, there we go. Like, I have more, but I just... Wow. Love your tantalizing um, teasing of research you've done. Her 
her read of friendship is so strong. I knew that there had to be a story there. Okay. Is there a story there? Yeah. Like, Do she I get r- to hear it now? <laughs> so Connie writes about, you know, why she writes. And I found this list that she had authored called Quirky Facts About Me. Okay. She writes old-time radio shows, which tracks because she's good at dialogue. She loves Broadway show tunes. And she says something that I think is really important. When I was younger, I would kiss the cover of books I love. Love it. And this tells me that Connie is extra. And this also tells me – we're first name. This also tells me that Connie, like as a Leo, Connie Rose Porter is someone who really actually cares about the things that she chose to make Addie's values. Because I Addie, Yeah, she learns to cherish both reading and friendship. And I think those things are like absolutely vital Connie writes elsewhere in this bio that in her childhood in New York, she says she was, quote, trying to figure out a way to dream my way out of the poverty I grew up in. Hmm. And to me, it's like, that's so addy. Yeah, I think so. And I think something that's really striking about this book is that it's really a book about the um, what happens when imagination meets real life. Mm-hmm. So at the end of book one, we're with Addie. She's imagining freedom, and she sort of gets a tangible, what she thinks is a tangible manifestation of it in the form of the dress that she's given right before they escape, which she cherishes. But then as you point us to, when she gets to Philadelphia, there's all of these moments um, that are that kind of temper her excitement and kind of make her question, okay, what does freedom actually mean and look like if I have to live in this cramped room that's hot in the summer, cold in the winter, I have to go out to a privy, more on that in a little while, um, you know, I can't ride the streetcar that fascinates me. She sees it on the street and, it, and she's filled with wonder and then also immediately filled with a different kind of wonder when Sarah tells her, um, well, there are some for people of color, but basically we can't ride this. And she goes home to her mother and, you know, her mother has to kind of help her sit with that. And it's it's really tough to to probably have to temper as a child, you know, what is it that I left everything, I all my family, my family's been completely divided. Surely I'm safer here. I'll, I'll maybe have a better life. But what does freedom mean now? I love that page so much. Uh, page 17, where Addie is asking those questions. And I think the way that Sarah is written is so brilliant because Mm -hmm. Sarah gets a lot of exposition out without it being clunky or awkward because Sarah is kind of our guide, right? Like Sarah is the guide to explain now why things are the way they are. And I just could so picture Addie saying, let's get on it. Looks like fun. And then Sarah explains, you know, we can't. And she says, oh, you know, basically is it because you need your parents? And Sarah explains further and Sarah explains, you know, why African-Americans both have to pay the same and aren't allowed to actually ride under the covered part. And it's just so simple. But when Addie says, like, that's not right, Mm -hmm. I really thought that was critical because there have been so many other instances where I think particularly with Kirsten and Felicity, the children are in morally morally dubious situations and they're like, huh. (laughs) Yeah. Right? Or like the way that in Felicity, like the narration almost gets pulled out for a second. Mm. And I think that that moral clarity was really brilliantly done and it wasn't overdone, right? She's just like, that's not right. And it's so direct. I loved that. And it's also because Addie, because we're traveling with her, 
we get to stand with her as outsiders looking at this new place that none of us have ever been before. And it is natural as the outsider to say or newcomer to say, wait, why is this the way this is? As someone who's trying to every place you go in your life, you're trying to make sense of your the world and your place in it, even as all of those circumstances change. Addie's doing that, you know, quite rationally. And her friend is showing how embedded it is in her by saying, oh, that's just the way it is. That's what she says to Addie in response. And just to follow up, just to give Connie's writing more props, not that it needs it, there are so many beautiful small moments in this book and that communicate relationships. And one of my favorites is on the top of page 18. So Addie's telling her mother about this and saying, like, this is really unfair. And her mother says, yeah, you're right. And and then Connie writes, um, Mama said, turning over the pillow so the cool side touched Addie's cheek. So there's just this very small act of tenderness between a mother and her daughter of being in this really hot attic. It has one window, but it's like a really cramped room and turning the pillow over so that Addie might feel the cool side. And I just thought, wow, that's, you know, that's so subtly done instead of having some huge melodramatic speech or Mm -hmm. some dramatic acts now of course we see later in the book that her mom you know does some an act of service to get into love language but for Addie but I just love that moment I just really so appreciate this writing yeah and it's also getting at like the tightness that they kind of need to have to survive together right because there are a lot of difficulties and I flagged that page for another reason where she talks about how she has her freedom and she says you'll still have it even if you never ride a streetcar And I also thought that was a brilliant way of kind of foreshadowing what's to come with civil rights movements Mm. because, you know, the notion that there can be freedom with such high levels of accommodation, that will change, right? And I mean, like, the next hundred plus years of civil rights struggles will center on the fact that freedom isn't truly realized if you don't actually have access and civic engagement, right? If you, if you actually are not allowed by structures and people to fully participate in something like transportation. And I can mention them towards the end, but there's some really brilliant work about streetcars and public transportation in the North, mm. exactly about this issue of way before Rosa Parks, which I think this is kind of hinting at as someone else iconic that even young readers might know about, that it actually does really matter. And Addie is kind of filled with this wonder of how things are different. And the mother is doing like the absolute best that she can. But already Addie has this sense of of righteousness that it's not fair. Mm-hmm. And that's oh, also yeah. being nine, right? It's bold. Yeah. And that's where I like it. It's not overwrought. Yeah, I like that. And I also like that I think, um, you know, as a child, you sort of just want, you see other people have things that, you desire in a very just basic childlike way like I want is a is sort of like a classic statement by a two-year-old but (laughs) remains true that you know you just have these basic desires and maybe you don't complicate them by contextualizing your family situation or whatever and so when we meet Harriet it's from this perspective of yeah (laughs) that is the appropriate response We see Harriet, and the thing we know about her first is that Sarah points her out as someone who is kind of like a rich girl who has a lot of dresses. And it's interesting that we end book one with a dress being a symbol of freedom, and now we see the dresses becoming a symbol of something else or a complication of that in some ways for Addie. 
When Harriet gives Addie exactly what she wants, which is a seat next to her in the best row in the class, right? Sarah is in the back, literally and figuratively. Mm -hmm. And so Harriet is kind of drilling her new possible friend. She asks if she knows the alphabet. And then she says, no, you know, but Sarah's been helping me. To which Harriet replies, Sarah, Sarah can hardly read herself. I'll help you. I taught myself to read when I was four. And at first you're kind of like, wow, that's a flex. Right. right? 100%. But <laughs> as we learn more and more about Harriet, there's a whole class element that comes into play where more and more it's being emphasized that unlike Sarah and Addie, who recently came and liberated themselves from plantations, her family does not have that history. And that causes jealousy and tension as the book goes on. What's interesting is that there's kind of a plot device that's comparable to Mean Girls, which is that we actually get a profile of Harriet before we see her. So on page 16, Sarah being a great friend. So Sarah's one of those all-time great friends who's like, listen, let me give you the 411 on everyone you're about to meet before we (laughs) roll in here. Like if you go to a party with someone... What? How us is this? This is 100% what we do. We're like, if I go with you somewhere and you know the people and I don't, you're like, let me tell you exactly what's about to happen. Here's who you're about to meet. Like, here's the situation. Like, here's the history. Here's the bullet points. All of it. But also Sarah demands, this is where the Leo comes out. Like, Sarah demands a loyalty of Addie where she's like, you will be my friend. And Addie's like, yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of playing the field. The visual of... You will never recover from this. (laughs) The way that Sarah is looking at Addie and Harriet on page 27, it will change your life. (laughs) Like... (laughs) It's it's very... It's a lot. There's a lot going on here. Like that painting is humming. It is humming with like Leo Moon energy where like I thought you were my friend. Excuse me. I couldn't love it more. It's a fascinating fact that i'm the leo in this relationship and yet you're the one who's like this is very leo it is and maybe i'm too close to it and i can't see it loyalty is truly very important to me as is friendship so this book was like lighting up my life in a lot of ways where i was like <laughs> ooh, kind of seeing myself on the page here not feeling super great about it at all times um but in this mean girls opening we get from sarah Addie's having some anxiety about first day of school, which, uh, you know, very relatable content. Okay. Then Sarah says, um, or Addie asks, like, if the girls dress fancy at school. And Sarah says, some do. There's a girl named Harriet. She's got a lot of pretty dresses. And Addie's like, she sounds rich. And Sarah's like, compared to us, she is. (laughs) And then there's a key quotation that says a lot. Quote, her mama don't work. Yeah. Tells us a lot. Tells us a lot. It does. And it's also really striking now because we know that part of what Sarah's mother does is this incredibly vital work of basically refugee resettlement, right? Like internal refugees where before the Civil War ends and before the Freedmen's Bureau is set up, it is primarily African-American people all over the country who are running and self-funding these charities. Um, There's been a lot of research that the financial investment that people made in one another's freedom and buying people in their own family is so colossal and has been so underrated and overlooked. Like she's probably putting some of their money into securing Addie and her mother's life. But of course, if you're nine and you want nice things, it's like, oh, like Harriet's the one. 
Right. Right. Oh, yeah. Like, if you have no idea what else is going on, it's that's all you can see. Um, so that was a very telling aside. And basically, this friendship, it made me think a lot about friendship in general, which is what all great books make you think about your own life in some mm-hmm. way. And friendship's a very important thing to me. It's an important thing to you. And I think this idea, this plot point of basically you have a really good friend who's been super solid to you. And then there's this person who comes along who po- possibly represents things you wish you had in yourself, saw in yourself, like flashy things, like traits you wish you had that you don't have, whatever it is. And you ice think, cream. Ice cream. I mean, my God, what I wouldn't do for a Klondike bar, please. <laughs> Um, but you know, like you, and that seems flashier, you go for it and you're like, uh, I'll catch you on the flip side, friend I'm taking for granted. That's such a relatable plot that I thought that was really sharp to pick that for this book. I loved it too. And I liked what you said earlier about how many lessons she's learning really quickly. Shout out to Miss Dunn doing great work as a teacher of the classroom. Great teacher. not super monitoring the mean girl situation as well as she could. But I'm going to give her a pass on that. Part of what comes out is like Sarah was Harriet's sort of pet project earlier, right? So she's the Janice in the Mean Girls world where she's like, listen, I've seen what happens, Katie Heron, and it doesn't go well. And there's a very particular choice of words that I think we should talk about, which is Sarah constantly warning Addie that she's going to become Harriet's slave. And like there's a very deliberate word choice there. And part of it is Harriet forcing kind of the new girl to constantly carry her things. And she really does turn quite mean by the end of the book. Yeah, she's teasing hangouts to study for the spelling bee. She's teasing just sort of like friend hangouts. And as they walk home from school, all of this stuff goes down on the walks home from school when she's originally with Sarah and they see Harriet and her friends. And Addie doesn't realize that there's sort of like different levels in this class and that she and Sarah, there's it's not equal among everybody that, you know, you have certain levels. And so she thinks that they can all walk home together and be friends. And Harriet's like, ah, uh, no. And Sarah's yeah. like, I don't. I don't know her like I don't I will not be a party to this and she says like she's gonna make you her slave and it would when I read that it was actually very striking to me that that language would appear in this context because of course that would mean something completely different to Sarah and Addie than it would to Harriet and then page 37 we get like actually a pretty climactic very specific mean girls moment I'm not saying this book inspired that film because I know a psychological study did, but I'm not saying it didn't. I'm not saying it didn't. So page 37, they're having this conversation. Sarah does not want to participate in these mind games. Harriet stopped and turned around. I heard you, Sarah, she snapped. Nobody asked you to walk with us. Harriet smiled a cool smile at Addie. But you can come with us if you want, Addie. How you can't sit with us is that. And Addie's wearing pink. Yeah. I mean, it's all there. I'm assuming it's Tuesday. I have to assume it's Tuesday. It's the only thing that makes sense in this context. It's it's such a clear I don't know her or like I don't want to know her, but they're adding each other. It's It's truly stunning. When Harriet then says Sarah isn't the boss of you, it's like she's playing such a game where she's like, listen, I'm the one that's looking out for you. Sarah's the drip. Like Sarah is not going to be a good friend. But Sarah hangs in there. 
Sarah does hang in. She's kind of like, and it, it actually, the more I think about this, does track on to Mean Girls. So now I really am wondering what Tina Fey was up to because Mean Girls ends with a mathlete competition and yep. here we just end with a spelling bee. So it's like, this all tracks to me now that I actually think about this. Yeah, Sarah hangs in there in a way that maybe I wouldn't as someone who does not tolerate this kind of behavior ever. Like if somebody did to me what Addie did... I'd be like, I don't think so. I don't think it's going to work out. No. And there is this one other really powerful moment, uh, page 44, if you follow along, which is when the group of students is able to see the march of soldiers. And specifically, they're able to see a regiment of African-American soldiers. And there's this other point of conflict. Again, just like really, really excellent exposition to get this out. Like one, to introduce that there were African-American soldiers that were part of Union regiments. And that it was incredibly dangerous in the sense of that added fear of capture by a Confederate, which Addie knows about quite well. And there's this piece where Harriet, like, not at all humble brags about the fact that people in her family are serving. And Addie knows of some service and then hopes of that for her brother. And there's this kind of jealous moment there where she wishes that she had access to the information that Harriet has. Like on one level, it is about the dresses. And on another level, it's just that Harriet has this command of her life in a way that's out of reach for Addie. Yeah. And I think there's almost... You know, like even seeing the soldiers walk down the street, it also means something completely different for each of them in their relationship to the war. Because for Harriet, it's really something that functions as a mechanism for her family who seem to have money to be able to be involved in ways that they can brag about. Like when she says that her brother wanted to serve and Harriet responds, as you noted, by saying um, that she had relatives, she says... On 45, she says, my uncle is serving with the 3rd Infantry. That was the first colored regiment organized in the state. So, and that her mother um, volunteers to help soldiers who have come home injured from the war. But really, they kind of have this benevolent attitude of people who are not intrinsically um, bound up with the causes, have not suffered the trauma and violence of the war necessarily themselves. Um, When Sarah says on 41, I still wish um, there was no war, Miss Dunn, before Miss Dunn could respond, Harriet says, you know the war is going to free the slaves. You should be glad for the war. You were a slave yourself. And then Miss Dunn checks Harriet and says, like, (laughs) all people of color used to be slaves, to which Harriet says, quote, not me. My family has always been free, Harriet said proudly. So there is this like clear class differential and people's distant measuring your distance from slavery in this classroom that um, has a certain power at least Harriet claims it as such and it creates this tension that runs really throughout the book yeah and it's so striking to hear this child say you know my family has always been free you know and kind of the weight of that in the classroom it really is a big deal I'm hoping we get more misdone Miss Dunn is amazing. I would love to know Miss Dunn's story. I would love to know, you know, where she fits in all of this. I think she did such a beautiful job of not being um, super over the top and sort of um, taking Addie into the school from a place of no knowledge of reading or writing or anything um, that would be taught in school and, you know, making a big deal of it, but instead kind of quietly encouraging her and the kind of co-teaching that happened in like a one-room schoolhouse situation that she's in where Sarah gets to help her initially and then Harriet sort of joins in. And that kind of co-teaching carries on is, of course, I mean, I think one of the most powerful things in the book is that 
Addie learns to read. To me, there are two scenes in this book that made me tear up. So on page 24 is the scene where Addie writes her name for the first time. Mm-hmm. And to me, this was a scene that really did make me emotional because in book one, you were forced to think about how the history of slavery is so at its core really about ownership and self-possession. And we talked in the last episode about how um, we don't use the language of so-and-so um, was freed of slavery but they or they ran away, but they liberated themselves. So kind of insisting on self-possession, even in conversations about ownership. And imagine the self-possession that comes with being able to write your own name, being able to use writing as a way to not only construct yourself, but to take possession. Like the, look, Imagine how Addie must have felt looking at that slate and saying, mm-hmm. like, I've been called this name every single day of my life. And we found out in book one where the, the name comes from and its meaning. But seeing it on the page, there's just something to that that's so powerful. And I think it's not a coincidence that the last line of that page right above the vignette of her writing Addie is, in Sarah, she had found a friend. Because Harriet might be objectively smarter because she's had privilege, like she might get a higher grade on the test, but she's not kind and she's not compassionate. And where the book ultimately takes us is this spelling bee, which is fraught, right? But you learn that there's the stakes of the selling bee at school, which Addie does win, thank God. But then there's this parallel trajectory of Addie is teaching her mother while they cook at night how to spell. And so they they work on family, they work on Addie, they work on different names. And where the book ultimately takes us is they spell the word love together. And I think that was done. And what what they're doing together on this very last page the quote is, this is our first word, like the first thing that they've really, really like realized together. Mm-hmm. Much, you know, kind of, again, drawing a line to this scene. I think that circles back to that hard conversation they had about who to trust and how to kind of make their way through the world. And I think the mom has to be pragmatic, right? Has to be really careful about who they're trusting or who they're not trusting. And it kind of gets back to like, that's how they're going to survive, right? Is like these relationships that they form, the way that they stick together. And it's not cute. It's not simple. It's this really complicated thing. But that bond of them baking together, that was so well done. That was so well done. And and I love too that there's this really tense scene where her mom is panicked thinking she's going to lose her job in the dress shop because she needs to deliver packages Mm. and she can't read the addresses on the packages or the street signs to deliver them. And Addie can make out one street sign, but ultimately it's Sarah who saves the day because she helps them deliver the packages and Addie's mom is so grateful. And I think that points to, as you're saying, the kind of ways that um, this post-slavery life even collapses the power dynamics and the relationships within the family. Mm -hmm. So I think this idea of friendship is something that's not only happening between contemporaries, between Addie and her peers, but also between Addie and her mother. Like it's of course still a parent-child relationship, but the power dynamics, um, and I think this is true in a lot of accounts of what refugee and immigrant families go through now, which is that the child goes to school and has access to education and then shares, comes home and educates the parents and extended family members so that they can share that resource just so that everyone can survive. And you can imagine the ways that that complicates or, or kind of elides some of the 
the family dynamics. Like the mother is someone that she should look to as the ultimate authority. But now the mother actually has to learn to read from Addie. And, you know, and so that that was like a really interesting. That's why, I mean, there's so many like things going on in this book. I have such I have such admiration for it. Also makes me think about the scene with the men marching away differently. Because there's like a very noticeable absence to me of men in this book. And oddly enough, I kept thinking about a book we read years ago by Karen Wolf, who's a phenomenal historian. Mm-hmm. And it's called Not All Wives. And it's about an earlier period, but it's about the way that women carved out lives not being married in colonial Philadelphia. And I kept thinking about that because I was like, women actually are functioning in businesses and doing things for themselves in the city. And part of it is the context of the war. But you see with both Miss Ford, who owns the seamstress shop, she's like Betsy Ross of 1864, but she's kind of like not super super understanding. Um, (laughs) But the way that these women are kind of like highly functional, right? You have Sarah's mom who is integral to running this charity. Again, what we would think of as being like resettlement work today. You have Addie, you have her mother, you have the teacher. And I really like the way that all these women are highly competent, highly confident and assisting each other. I think that was really smart. In a way, it kind of reminds me of that Kirsten book we read where it was sort of like grounded in a world of women. That's what this book has been too, but a really interesting example of like i mean the war is still going on but you can imagine like a wartime or reconstruction era kind of civil society network of women who are helping each other make their lives possible and navigate the city and navigate emancipation and all these things that don't necessarily involve any kind of relationship with what we think of as organized politics you know Addie and her mother have had no relationship to that they exist outside as do the network of people who have helped them and i just think that does a lot to recenter how we think about power in these situations, Mm. that it's not something that coalesces around traditional um, ideas of politics, that it's actually something that can exist in the family, that can exist in, you know, your neighborhood, um, in a religious space. I think the AME Church was really important in this world. Um, So I really love that the book kind of insists upon that and and challenges what we might assume about how power moves or works in this time. We also talked about the fact that there was clearly good consultation going into this book and something that's clearly a reflection of good historical scholarship making its way into the study is in the peak into the past. It's all about schooling. It's all about, you know, forbidden literacy and then ways that people acquire this. And on page 69, there is a line The schools were successful mostly because of the efforts of African-Americans themselves. And that's a really critical intervention to say, you know, again, along the same lines that freedom isn't something that was given because it also Mm -hmm. really wasn't. Um, If you look at something like the Rosenwald schools, which were schools that are often thought to come from the largest of a, a white northern family, which is partially true. When you actually look at the way most schools were built in the South during Reconstruction and all the way through the 1930s, during this period of very intense and rigid segregation, anytime there was a Rosenwald school, which came with some grant funding, or a school funded by Rockefeller Foundation, any one of these things, local people still had to do almost all of the rest of the fundraising and had to Mm. physically build the school. So all of these schools that get kind of slapped with a label that they were funded by a Northern philanthropist, 
like a Carnegie library. The difference is local people had to literally still build it themselves. But part of that was this sense that people would feel this investment and it did work. Like people felt that they figuratively and literally brought these schools into being. But what people sometimes miss is like, yeah, they did. (laughs) Yeah, 100%. Like, Like the funding was one very small piece of it. But I love that the school centers an African-American teacher as being so vital and the way that her educating Addie and Sarah has this ripple effect. Yeah, I I love that too. I just love that, you know, as you know, I'm really interested in the history of reading. So having a plot that's around um, a formerly enslaved person learning how to read is, I think, a really powerful plot line for people to think about because I think on the one hand there's all these narratives even in the way people talk about reading now like reading equals liberation and it's Mm -hmm. that simple and I actually I think that's oversimplified and probably not true but you know and it's something that doesn't even work mapped onto Addie because as she sees in this book reading does not give her pure liberation it's something that can make her life easier in a lot of ways helps her navigate her life but it doesn't change um, the the basic power differentials that affect her day-to-day living. But it did make me reflect a lot on a lot of the accounts in, I know it's a problematic project, but in the Work Progress Administration interviews of um, formerly enslaved people conducted in the 30s, there are a lot of accounts of um, their recollections of other enslaved people they knew who learned how to read and the consequences of that when it was Mm. outlawed. And it's truly horrifying to read, so I don't necessarily recommend it. But just suffice to say, a trend was that amputation was a punishment. But then you find all these really beautiful stories of when I was when she learns the alphabet. I was actually thinking about this that there are accounts of enslaved people um, and formerly enslaved people when a person would pass. Um, had they not, there was an, one particular story I'm trying to think of, and I've been trying to find the footnote all day of where I've found this, but as they buried this person, children stood around the grave and said the alphabet Mm. because it was such a tribute um, that their lives would be different than this person's. Yeah. And kind of related to that, this book also got me thinking of there is a tree in Virginia and it's called the Emancipation Tree. And it is purportedly in Hampton, Virginia, one of the very first places in the South where the Emancipation Proclamation was read out loud. And in this context, part of the significance of it being read out loud is that someone could read it, right? Mm -hmm. And that everyone else at that point had to listen. And part of the kind of story around this is that this is then the beginning of what becomes Hampton Institute, which later becomes Hampton University as it is Mm -hmm. known today. But there's a story around this of like the power of that document and people standing around and listening to that document. This is covered in a book called 22 Years Work, which is the first kind of snapshot of what was going on there, published in 1893. We can link to that. Um, Some of you might know of this place as where Booker T. Washington went to school. But part of why that place is known and kind of came up again recently is Hampton is also the site of the fort where if people who had self-liberated and run away, fugitives, if they could make it to that fort, they could be brought in to the Union as contraband of war. Hmm. So that, like, literally all this is happening in the same place, and it's not coincidental. It's this layer. And it's not surprising in retrospect that, you know, 
the general order is passed declaring people contraband of war effectively so they can actually be free and be safely on the union side in the context of the war. And then people are fundraising constantly to get teachers there. So that's a hugely important moment in terms of like, what are the priorities? And learning is a very early priority. The community, like two towns north of me, um, was obsessed with fundraising and like stitching things to send to um, the teachers. They, they called them the contraband teachers, right? To send money down mm. to make sure that people could learn. Because as you're seeing with Addie's mother, like what she can do in the world is so limited if she doesn't know how to get around. Yeah, and I, I want to give credit again to the people who wrote Peek into the Past for this book because mm. they also talk about school segregation. So, yeah, I mean, I think in the 90s or when this was when this came out, I could see some of the Peek into the Past just sort of saying like, yes, this is what education of um you know, people of color was like in this period and that's it. But I think using that word segregation is really important because it has such a long history. And as you're saying, if you limit the resources available to students, it limits what they can do and learn in their lives and their trajectories. And I think that's still a conversation we're having today in education. Um, So I think in a way, it's kind of a a really important corollary to things happening now, to conversations we're still having. Someone posted a picture last week of Ruby Bridges, who is the famous young girl who was integral to a desegregation case. And she's like very well known for being this iconic young girl with the shiny shoes, having to walk in and face vitriol from white people yelling at her. Like, she's still alive. She's still alive. And And she's not, she's not like... (laughs) did you read that article about the oldest woman in the world and how it was like probably fake it's always fake it's always no but oh (laughs) no no no. but this is like literally the person who holds the record who was 124 allegedly in france okay yeah okay i'll send you this it's like you don't even need to read it to know that this is not real but this person does a really good job of being like i think her mom died and for inheritance reasons, she took on her mother's identity and they just I never reported. They reported the death as the daughter. I love so it. she just swapped identities with her mom so they'd never have to report an inheritance tax, pay an inheritance tax. And I'm like, whoa, like that's a crazy flex in order to not pay some taxes. But that's Harry. You know, that's Harry. <laughs> it so kind of is. But I have yeah. to share. I have to share. The reviews are all over the place for Addie. I'll just say that like they're generally all positive, but a lot of them like they're, they're just not it, it's not it's not the depths that it was with Josefina, which will never be paralleled. But a, a writer named Lola posted five of my thoughts on Addie Learns a Lesson. I was like, love that oh she boy. had more and love that she was like, you get the top five. I'm not going to read them, but I love where she leads. Addie, don't let Harriet get you down. She's a mean girl. And you're going to meet more in your lifetime. She's like, Addie, I'm going to level with you. Number two, Harriet, check your p- privilege. You're not better than other people. Wow. Number three, I love the scene when Addie teaches her mother her letters and how to spell with dough. It just feels like loving to me. I thought that was beautiful. That's nice. And then she pivots immediately. Four, spelling bees are always rough. Always. Like she's coming from this. Oh my God. I like that the review is basically kind of a a an opportunity for memoir for Lola, where she's like, it's about Addie, but it's going to be more about me if you stay with it. She's like, number five, recommended. 
here's where I got confused. So this is where I said they're kind of all over. Mara, just to give you her headline, the Addie books get considerably watered down in this second installment. What book did you read? I don't know what she's talking about. I don't either. Um, Strange. I also, as one last one, I really loved Maria's review. These are all on Goodreads. She says, you know, Addie starts her new life in Philadelphia. She knows what real freedom is like. And I, I think, you know, I know no one is going for Shakespeare with these reviews, but I think what that actually really captures is the importance of this book because it doesn't gloss over problems that she's having, but it makes it feel compact and manageable within a nine-year-old's purview. And I think that's what we keep coming back to. Like, does this feel authentic to a child's experience? And does it feel authentic to a lived historical experience? And there's as much fiction in WPA narratives as truth because of how the people who conducted them chose Mm -hmm. to record people's true stories. So that is no reflection on the narrators. It's how people chose to record them. This gets at something that feels very real. It does. It does feel very real. And, you know, just just as a rhetorical question, maybe you have an answer for it, but the word that Harriet misspells in the spelling bee is principle. And I'm wondering yeah. if Connie chose that because Harriet has none. Connie doesn't play. Um, I also learned something kind of shocking. I, I always read the different things that people fill out and what folks, you know, say to us about their connections to this. This does relate, I promise. Listener Brenna wrote to us some time ago, and among the many bullet points she she sent us, she said, I once won 53 cents playing trivia by answering that Addie was the first AG doll to show teeth. And I think that's a metaphor. Wow. Why 53 cents? I don't know because I don't don't know what this trivia is. Um, But listener Eleanor she also is in the Connie Porter fan club and she says Connie Porter didn't use kid gloves. Couldn't agree. No, like <laughs> I couldn't true. agree more. She I didn't. couldn't agree more. She didn't. Um, and it has been really lovely to hear from people about kind of how they either connected to Addie or have reconnected to Addie. This teeth fact like will never leave me. It's just you like teeth stuff? No, I don't I don't care about teeth stuff, but I feel like I love that we live in a world where people are like, I'm going to use my literacy and my skills to tell Allison and Mary that I won 53 cents because I would have never known that fact. I need to know why 53 cents. That's going to keep me up at night. Please write us back. I need more of a backstory. Thank you. She gave us backstory on other things, but I think we need like a biographical sketch. Sidebar, do you think this book inspired the plot of the best Hallmark commercial ever made? No, 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 I do, no. Allison? No, I, okay, I'm going to tell it to the listeners for you. Mary loves this Hallmark commercial. It makes me cry It's ridiculous. This, it's so beautiful. This older man has an entire He's in his shoebox. 40s. Okay, he has an entire shoebox of cards from his entire family, and the crux of the commercial is he is pulling them out and reading them for the first time because he has not had You aren't telling this literacy. right. You are robbing us of the poetry of this commercial. So he's also, he's like caught reading a children's book on a bus. Mary loves it. 
the whole plot of this is that he's never been able to read a single card from anyone in his family until now. So he pulls them all out, which means no one actually loves him because no one noticed no. that dad couldn't read. Allison, let me stop you right there. You have robbed us all of the poetry. So let me briefly tell the listeners the actual plot of this commercial. Let me take you through it real quick. <laughs> I there is a man. Shh. There is a man. I don't believe in silencing women, but like I'm going to like... <laughs> Pause you for the moment. I know. Uh, There is a man who takes a bus to a one-on-one teaching session with a literacy teacher. And we literally follow him over presumably months as he goes from reading Dr. Seuss, which he's embarrassed to have someone catch popping out of his bag on the bus. And he turns to the person. He's like, oh, it's my grandkids. Like, I'm embarrassed. We see him learning Shakespeare. He's like, he goes from Dr. Seuss to Shakespeare to reading the newspaper with his teacher. And his teacher's like, I've done all I can do for you. Like, you know how to read now. It's beautiful. He goes home. Now, this is where the tears come in. He goes home. He goes up to his bedroom. He pulls a shoebox off the shelf. My contention is these cards were all from his daughters, and they never knew that he couldn't read because he was embarrassed to let them know that. So he just accepted the cards and was like, thanks. I love you. I presume that's what you're saying in these cards. He sits down on his bed, and he reads every card that his children have ever given him because he can finally read them. It does not move me at all. (laughs) No, I'm trying to be serious. Like It's so beautiful. I found this so shocking and almost like depraved where I was like, no one one has truly known this man in his life. But maybe he held himself apart because the shame was so great that he just performed. I'll say this, like your mother is a beautiful human and she teaches people how to read and you are a wonderful scholar of the book and we will just like in our Venn diagram we will never agree on this is this commercial. like our friendship thing where it's like you're like I'm not mad to quote Sarah I'm not mad <laughs> no I'm like <laughs> oh my god you're Everyone, like you're insane I let you have this one the energy radiating out of Sarah on page 27 is me you at like the slightest that. No, it is. For the rest of your... I mean, I think, are you Sarah or am I Sarah? I'm Sarah. Okay, so then who am I? You're Annie in this scenario. Oh, my God. So I'm the one who's like, see ya? But I'm a Leo. I'm extremely loyal. That doesn't track with me. You are. You are. Like, you have never betrayed me in this way, but like... Or anyway, let's hope, but (laughs) we'll see. no. No, 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 but like... The Sarah energy, like, we'll post the picture. The Sarah energy jumps out 100%. I just have to say, and, like, maybe this is me talking out of turn, but, like, when I did open this family tree and caught sight of Papa, he's a 10. He is a 10. I'm never going to let this go. I just keep staring at him. I'm like, God, he's a 10. It's to make you miss, like, the men in this book because they are coming back. The men are coming Spoiler back. alert. There's a vacuum. Um, I did also want to recommend, which it will seem kind of a diversion, but Marla Miller, who is a historian of early women and particularly has done a lot of work around seamstresses and mm-hmm. most famously Betsy Ross, if you want to better understand how hard it would be for the mother and Miss Ford to actually make a living running a seamstress shop in Philadelphia – please read Betsy Ross and the making of America. It's brilliant. It's not about the flag. Yes. I would also like to recommend the work of a scholar of literacy who I really, really respect. And it's not just because I have the privilege of knowing her, but 
Um, Hillary Wiss is a literary scholar of literacy, and she works on um, early America, focusing on people of color and indigenous people in particular. And so she's the person who came up with an idea of the, quote, readerly Indian versus the, quote, writerly Indian. So in other words, like missionaries really wanted to teach Indians how to read so that they could um, convert them and take them on, um, as people of faith, but they didn't want them to write because that would be transgressive that they could actually use writing against them. And we think about, um, people of color, enslaved people being able to write passes for themselves. That was like Mm -hmm. considered a threat for why enslaved people should not learn how to write so they could write their own pass to leave the plantation. Um, it's just really interesting and fascinating work. So I will, we will link to some of her work and I would definitely check it out. Also, an article that I read, you know, probably not long after it came out that has always stuck with me. And I thought of it while reading this book. And you don't often think about journal articles after you've read them. Brian McCammick, who wrote, um, my God, they must have riots on those things all the time. This is an article about urban public transportation and relates really closely to what we talked about with that. Um, There's also a book called Trolley Wars by Scott Malloy, which is about a different context, but like why these tight spaces are both like under heavy surveillance, as you mentioned, and their spaces ultimately for civil rights struggles as well. And I think anytime we can, you know, point to a history that isn't just a single moment on a bus does a better honor and tribute to how long and complicated the struggle actually was. Definitely. Mary, if people are going to pitch you on a network of just proper real world and catfish content, like, wow, what a dream. (laughs) Do you want them to reach out? Like, is this something people should reach out to you with? Please reach out to me. Any angel investors who have access to classic seasons of the real world, truly, that's not a joke. I want leads. And I remember when I was watching Pioneer Quest, I loved it. And I'm still watching spinoffs. So people sent me a lot of great spinoffs on that. So if you have any real world leads, please get at me on Twitter at MaryMahoney123 or on Instagram at Mimi Mahoney. Also, if I'm going to post that Hallmark commercial, would love your thoughts on that. Just just reach out to me. Let's have, you know, only if you agree, though, because, you know, I'm a sensitive flower. Allison, if people want to get in touch with you and talk about friendship and or Hallmark ads and or, you know, The Batch, whatever, where can they find you? You can find me on Instagram and on Twitter at Allison Horrocks. And you can reach out to the show at American Girls Podcast. We're very excited because we might hit 10,000 followers and then we could have the swipe up feature. So if you want to make that dream come true, we would love it. Um, You may also reach out to us on our website, AmericanGirlsPodcast.com. And thank you again to Anna Newman, who does very wonderful curation of that website. And you can reach out to us via email. You can call our hotline find all that information right there and thanks to everyone who's supported our patreon so far and if you're interested in joining us as we said at the beginning our february episode is going to be on ann rinaldi's time enough for drums and i can't state enough this book is worth getting invested in yeah yeah if and like maybe it will take an angel investor for you like i'm not sure i don't want to pry into anyone's life sure this I, I haven't behaved this way in public reading a book in a really long time. So 
if this heavy conversation on the power of print and literacies moved you and you need a palate cleanser, Anne Rinaldi is there for you. Yeah. And you know how like people weren't embarrassed to be seen reading Fifty Shades of Grey on the train when that came out? Yeah. I read parts of it in my own home, but I would have read it in public for this episode because that's how committed I am to it. Yeah. We'll see you you next. We'll We'll see see you next next episode. Thank Thank you. you.